Gosh, that was such a great time of praise and worship. We could just go home now and be totally happy. Uh, thank you. I was thinking this morning, uh, what a blessing it is to be a part of such wonderful women like all of you that are so authentic and care and share and lift up each other's needs. So, thank you. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm happy to be a part of the teaching team. I'm happy to be with all of you. And after studying Daniel chapter 7 and thinking about the future, aren't you happy to be covered in the love of God? Yay. And that song, A Mighty Fortress, reminds us of the truth when we can get overwhelmed with these things, that he must be the victor. Now, our study today starts with a really pretty terrifying dream. It got me thinking about dreams. Last week, I actually dreamed that Paul McCartney was coming to church here. And it was a good dream, because he was a nice guy. We all liked him. (laughs) But I know a dream that I bet most of you have had some version of it. And it's sort of a terrifying dream. You're in school. You have a test coming, but you never went to the class. And then you don't have any books. And you never did any homework. And maybe you couldn't find the class. So you're running up and down the halls looking for the class. Or you've lost your locker that has all your books. So you're looking for your books in your locker. Or you make it to class. You look down and you realize you are in your underwear. (laughs) How many have had any version of that dream? What is that? I think it's when we're really stressed or something. I don't know. Imagine having a dream that prophesied the rise and the fall of world powers. That prophesied the violence and the arrogance of cruel and vicious world leaders. That prophesied the fierce and horrible deaths of God's saints. That prophesied the entire earth being ruled by a demonic leader. Imagine having Daniel's dream. It was prophecy about the future, history written beforehand. And it's amazing because we have seen Daniel's prophecies come true in history and we're waiting for the rest of them to come true as well. But sometimes I say to myself, I don't know if you do, why prophecy? You know, is it okay to know all these prophecies? Sometimes they're overwhelming, TMI, too much information. It overwhelms me. You know, I just want to shut my eyes one day and fly away. Remember that old song, One Glad Morning, When This Life Is Over? I'm going to fly away. So don't tell me anything before (laughs) and I'll be happy. But I have to stop and say to myself, God wants us to know prophecy. Or we wouldn't still have in our hands something written 500 B.C. in the year 2011. Think about that. It's unbelievable. So I have to say to myself, there's a reason God wants us to know these things. I jotted some down. Prophecy strengthens our hearts, increases our faith, provides us with hope and peace, keeps us grounded in truth. Think about, I was trying to think of an illustration, think about maybe having a baby and not knowing one thing about it, absolutely nothing. Okay, think about not being trained in it and being unaware. You'd be totally frightened. You'd be overwhelmed. You'd feel insecure. You'd be confused. You might even begin to believe some untrue things. 
about having a baby. And I had a friend, when I told her what I was working on for this lesson, she said, you're going to need to get some jokes and insert them throughout the morning. <laughs> so I only did it once, and this is the spot, because it worked. There was a couple that were untrained with having a baby, but they were having a baby. They lived in a very remote area. Of course, this is just a joke. So they called a doctor, and they said, hey, you know, we think that there's something happening here. Come and help us. I think we're having a baby. So the doctor gets there. Well, they're so remote. They have no electricity. It's nighttime. And so he says to the man, you know, the husband, you've got to hold this light if you want me to help deliver this baby. And he said, okay. So he's holding the light. She goes into labor. She has the first baby. They're all excited. Oh, my gosh, it's a miracle. And then the doctor says, wait a minute. I see another baby coming. So the husband's just standing there in shock, holding the light. His eyes are big. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, I had two babies. This is unbelievable. And the doctor says, wait a minute. I see another baby coming. And another baby starts to come. And, and the husband's holding the light and looks at the doc and says, doc, do you think it's the light that's attracting them? <laughs> God does not want us to be ignorant and overwhelmed with things that are to be. He wants us to face the future in faith. So prophecy shows us God is continually working out his sovereign purposes. And that, here's my favorite part. I'm reminded of the love of God when I realize his love for us is woven throughout his purposes. That's an awesome thing. When we understand that... Our fears are replaced with hope, truth, peace. We ask God to be with us for our tomorrow as well as our today. The dreamer. Daniel had his dream chronologically between chapters 4 and 5 of the book that we're looking at. It was 14 years before he found himself in a lion's den. 14 years before Babylon would fall to the Persians. He was 68 years old at the time. Belshazzar was king of Babylon at that time. So this was after last week's lesson. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He's out of the picture now. It's Belshazzar. And Babylon was at its height of power with King Nebuchadnezzar and the dream that he had of the statue in chapter 2. But at the time of Daniel's dream, Babylon's power was beginning to wane. He had been the interpreter of two dreams of Nebuchadnezzar's, and now Daniel is going to have four dreams of his own. So one night, Daniel went to bed as usual, fell asleep, and God came visiting. What a night for Daniel. He dreamed a divinely imposed dream. It was a prophetic revelation, and it was a dream that had visions in it. The dream refers to Daniel being asleep. We know sometimes in the Old Testament, God gave visions when the people's eyes were open and they were awake. God wants us to know Daniel was asleep here. That's why he uses the word dream. Visions are what he saw in that dream. And did you notice in chapter 7, how many times Daniel says, I looked, and then I looked, and I looked. Five times, he's wanting us to know there's a sequence to the events in his dream. Each time he says that. When Daniel woke, he wrote down, the Bible tells us, the substance of his dreams. It is what we hold in our hands today, 2,500 years later. 
awesome. And while Daniel picked up a pen, dipped it in the ink, and started to write down all that he saw and experienced, I think his hand was probably shaking. The Bible tells us he was pale and his heart was troubled. He was trying to understand. But here's the neat thing. We would read in that chapter that it said, Daniel kept it all in his heart. It's the same kind of phrase used when Mary in the New Testament found out about the future of her son. And the Bible tells us she kept it all in her heart. And what that means is they believed it. They didn't understand it. But they believed it in faith. Daniel believed and protected the revelation that he received from God. One theologian said this that I really love. When we have God's mysterious plan in our heart, and it maybe doesn't make sense, it's a deep soul exercise to trust in it and believe it. Daniel exercised a deep soul exercise after watching this dream. Okay, the dream. I want to start uh, tell you this before we get into it. There's definitely different interpretations of chapter 7. I'm going to be interpreting it along with uh, some other people that are conservative. Uh, this is the Dallas Theological Seminary conservative interpretation. It's also Christ Chapel's interpretation. So that's the direction I'm going to go. Now, the dream is going to correspond with the dream in chapter 2 that Amy taught us about, the giant statue that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about, and uh, we're going to talk about that more. And so both dreams cover the spans of the time of the Gentile dominion over the earth. We are still in that time period today. And both dreams indicate that Israel and her land will be ruled by four successful world powers. If you remember from studying Isaiah last year, this is God's divine discipline on Israel because of their disobedience. That's what's happening. But I thought these differences were interesting. Who's Nebuchadnezzar? He's a proud pagan monarch. And so when he sees the powerful nations in his dream, he sees them like man would see them, as a giant gold strong statue as a man of God Daniel sees these four powerful nations as God sees them vicious beasts evil and wicked so let's look at them starting in verse 2 Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. I love that uh, vision when we first get into the stream. We picture the agitated sea and the waves and the darkness. And at the very beginning, we realize that God is sovereign over all the nations we're about to read. At the very onset of Daniel's dream. And here's how we know that. The winds of heaven are who are stirring up these Gentile world powers. These are the angelic beings that God uses to set his plans for the nations in motion. So we see God's sovereignty from the very beginning. They come down to, uh, from heaven to accomplish God's purposes, and they come to the sea, which often represents Satan and his purposes. 
Satan is called the dragon of the great sea. And I believe these are the agitated nations, the people of the world that oppose the plans of God. It's the boundless ocean of humanity that's deceived by the ruler of the world, Satan. And one man said, it's the world of nations in a tumultuous state. That's where the angelic beings come to. Look on your verse sheet. Isaiah 17. Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the people, they roar like the roaring of great waters. And so God comes to these nations, sets his plans in place. Look at Psalm 2 on your verse sheet. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against the anointed one. The enthroned one in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Daniel witnessed these four fierce world powers rise from the sea. We know they're fierce because he uses the term beast to describe them. It gives us some insight into the character of these powers. Look at Daniel 7.4. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. This line represents the nation of Babylon. And I want you to take out your chart right now. You got this today. And it's going to compare Nebuchadnezzar's dream on one side with Daniel's vision. They're the same nations they're talking about. They're just represented in different ways. And you can look at this deeper on your own later. But you can just glance at it while we go through these uh, four world powers. The lion corresponds to the golden head of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It symbolizes power and strength. And it's got the wings of an eagle symbolizing swiftness. One animal, the lion, is the king of the animals. The bird, the eagle, is the king of the birds. And this is the symbols that actually were the symbols of Babylon. If you happen to go, want to visit the king one day in Babylon, there would be two lions outside the palace with eagle wings above them. But we read that the um, wings were torn from the lion. This means that Babylon's power was weakening. It was no longer able to fly and conquer around the earth. No longer able to hover over and be ruler. This could have happened because of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity we studied last week, where he lost power for seven years and was insane because of his pride. Maybe that's when Babylon's power weakened. Maybe it was after his death. But Babylon isn't the same. We see that the lion raises up on its two feet and stands like a man and was given the heart of a man. This is probably also in reference to Nebuchadnezzar that we studied last week. Because of his pride, he went out in the fields. He was disciplined by God. He ran around like an animal on all fours. He ate the grass. His hair grew long, his fingernails became like claws. He became like an animal till he humbled himself before God. And what happened next? He stood back up like a man with a changed heart. This is what we're seeing in the lion here. He was a little less beastly 
after he stood up like a man. So Daniel looks again. Remember the word looks? These powers don't arrive all at once. So let's look at verse 5. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. This bear represents the nations of the Medes and the Persians. Remember when we studied Isaiah last year, and you may have studied it in BSF even, um, we learned that was Cyrus that God lifted up from Persia to overcome Babylon. History proved that to be true. They're the nation that comes in after Babylon. The bear corresponds with the silver chest and arms of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we think, why a bear? The second empire, because it was like a bear, think of a bear, it's powerful, it's ferocious, but it would lack the kingly majesty of the lion. It would be a little heavy, it would be a little clumsy in its movements, and we see that it's raised up on one side, which makes it appear even clumsier. Most uh, theologians believe that what that meant is one side of the bear became more powerful than the other. And history shows us that Persia became the dominant source and the Medes sort of lost their power as Persia became the stronger of those two. So we picture the bear like that. He had three ribs in its mouth. These are probably three nations that um, Persia conquered. That would be Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon. But I thought it was really interesting. The bear, it's not really like it's, it's moving around. It's kind of sitting there. It's still got the, the ribs in its mouth. It's like it didn't entirely devour it. And then it gets that word from God, get up and go and eat your fill. Again, it's the work of the sovereign God who pushes nations to do his will. And that's what the bear will do. By devouring other kingdoms, by expanding their territory, the Medes and the Persians were doing and fulfilling the purposes of God. Daniel looks again, verse 6. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. The leopard represents the nation of Greece. In Nebuchadnezzar's statue, it was the belly and the thighs. Now, if you think about a leopard, it's known to be swift. It's agile. So this nation would demonstrate great swiftness in conquest, like a leopard with wings, meaning that it was unnaturally fast, faster than a leopard could ever really go on its own. And who do we think about in Greece back then? Alexander the Great. It took him 13 years to conquer the world. It's amazing. He covered a lot of ground in a short time. He outstripped all other conquerors. He conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in just four years. He ruled from Europe to Africa to India. And guess how old he was when he died, Alexander? 33 years old. Gosh. When he died, four of his generals decided to get four kingdoms for themselves. This is probably the four heads that we see in this verse. That would be Macedonia, Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt. 
Some people think the four heads represent the four corners of the earth to show with what great vastness Alexander conquered the world. But we see even in that verse that Greece did not get all this territory and conquest because of Alexander's bravery. It was because he was given authority from God. It was the will of God. We see that at the end of verse 6. Daniel's going to look again, verse 7. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying, frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. This beast represents the nation of Rome. It is different. It is a monstrosity. It is so cruel. And it is so horrible that Daniel cannot even think of an animal to compare it to. It's a mongrel. It's a mixture of all the animals Daniel's already seen because the three animals we just talked about, the bear and um, the leopard and... What am I forgetting? The lion. It's going to overpower them all. So John sees in Revelation, hundreds of years later, in his vision, an animal that's Rome. And he says this, I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and he resembled a leopard, but he had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. Rome would conquer all of these nations. It's crushing, it's devouring, it's trampling. It has iron teeth, like the iron legs and feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. This means strength to conquer and power and be able to destroy. So this will be the monster of the Gentile dominion that will fully manifest its anti-God and its anti-Israel nature. We know historically Rome followed the Greek Empire in power, but eventually Rome lost that power. So from this dream, here's what we have to realize. They will regain that power. It will be coming near the time of Christ's return to earth, his second coming. When Rome is revived, it will have ten horns. A horn always means power. So it will have ten kings or ten kingdoms near the time of Christ's second coming. Um... The little horn we are about to meet in the next verse will become the head of this monstrous kingdom called Rome. And many theologians understand that's the 11th king we will know as the Antichrist. So Daniel's really thinking about these ten horns when he's introduced to the little horn. Look at verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, this 11th king of Rome, the Antichrist, has a pretty insignificant beginning when we read that verse. He emerges among the other ten kings. He's smaller than them. But soon he uproots three kingdoms of the ten that are already established. He had eyes and a mouth. This means he's intelligent. It also means he's human. 
which we understand, and yet he was still a beast because Satan would come to reside and live in this Antichrist at this point in history. So we have to say to ourselves, oh my gosh, this is where God loses control. Let's look at Revelation 13, in case you were thinking that. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. You see the key word there? Given. Given, 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 the Antichrist only has the power that God allows him to have to accomplish his will. And so at this point, if I was uh, hanging out with Daniel, I would be shaking him saying, wake up, wake up. This is frightening. This is scary. Get up. And things are looking bleak. And I think God knew that. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this terrifying, dark dream comes the incredible vision of the Ancient of Days. God on his throne, ever on his throne, in power, in holiness, and being worshipped in praise with millions of angels around him. What a sight for Daniel to see. How encouraging. Daniel witnesses the sovereign judgment of God over these Gentile world powers and the Antichrist. He sees that God is here to usher in the fifth kingdom, the final kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. We could look up and realize what all these symbolisms mean in this, what it would take us forever. So I'm just going to tell you, I compared these to scriptures, and uh, we can see this when we read other passages. The thrones, that's the 24 elders of the church. And they're there to assess with the judge. The Ancient of Days, you all figured out, that's God. And Ancient of Days, this is the only place you'll see this in scripture. And it means eternal. And so, who's the Ancient of Days? The first person of the triune God. He's the eternal one who exercises control, and he's about to pass sentence. And we're going to see, because his son is going to present his case against the Antichrist and the evil world power at the time. The white clothing and hair, God's holiness. The flames on his thrones and his wheels and his river in front of him is all about God's glory, and it's manifested during judgment. The myriads attending, we know those are angels, more than we could ever envision. We've never seen anything like that. We won't till we get to heaven. How incredible to get to actually visually see the justice of God over all the earth. 
He was seated, the books were open, time for judgment. This time of judgment, Jesus refers to in Matthew 25, if you want to read that later. It's separating the sheep from the goats, the believers from the non-believers. Mostly it's about the unbelieving, living Jews and Gentiles when Christ returns to earth at his second coming that have lived through the tribulation and are now to be judged by him. We're going to look at that deeper in a minute. The other beasts, we talked about the three other beasts. They had their dominion taken away years earlier through military conquest. But their dominion, their culture, their attitude had carried on now into the Roman Empire. So they are also judged. That's why Rome is often called Babylon, even though Babylon is not in the scene at this point. The beast would be slain here, thrown into the blazing fire at Christ's second coming. And in chapter 2, do you remember we saw this stone that came up to that giant statue of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And the stone smashed it. It's Jesus. Jesus comes to smash the empires that stand opposed to the plans of his father. Look at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel witnesses the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look in that verse. I love that it's called, he's called here the Son of Man. Jesus loved to call himself that. And he got it from this verse when he walked this earth in the New Testament. And what does Son of Man remind us of? That God took on flesh. It reminds us of the incarnation. It reminds us of his bruises and his suffering. It reminds us of the cross, and it reminds us of his resurrection. But look at that verse again. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. And that's a reference to his deity. So we see flesh and yet deity at the same time. This is a vision of the humility of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. It reminded me of when Jesus had resurrected and he was about to ascend and be with the Father. Remember his followers came out to the hill and Jesus blesses them and he's being lifted up and he's lifted up into a cloud. And the disciples got to experience what this verse is talking about. It was their friend. It was their teacher. He was a man. Jesus Christ. But then when he got engulfed in the clouds, they realized he's also our God, flesh and deity. The angels looked down at everyone and said, why do you look up? This is how he'll come back. Daniel's telling us that very same thing here. Jesus returns in a cloud of his deity. So Jesus approaches his father with the Uh, for the Father to keep the promises made to the Son. Look at Psalm 2 on your verse sheet. 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And so Jesus has returned to earth to reign for 1,000 years in the millennial kingdom. Then he will surrender that kingdom to God the Father and God will appoint Jesus to rule over it for all eternity. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, for he has put everything under him. When it says that everything has been put under Christ, it is clear that doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so God may be all in all. And we will worship every people, every nation, every language. We will worship Christ as he rules over the Father's kingdom. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the stone that crushed the statue? Remember that it grew, it became a great mountain, it filled the whole earth? That's what Daniel's talking about right here. The kingdom of Christ. I got to see recently just the one scene, is probably the, the, the best scene, of the old movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. If you've never seen it, it'd be worth watching. But there is, it's known for the chariot scene. And I don't know how they film this scene because there's like ten chariots racing in Rome around a, a really frightening uh, road and they're racing each other and everybody's out to get each other. And uh, in it, I realize there's a lot of symbolism in it because Charlton Heston, of course, plays the Jewish prince and he represents the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, in the race. He's actually in the race. And then there's a really creepy old friend of his who represents Rome. And I thought, it's really a picture of what Daniel's talking about here. How that empire is going to so persecute and hate the Hebrews, the Jewish people, and anything that has to do with their God. And so in the race, when it starts, that's the two you keep your eyes on. And guess what? Charlton Heston, he's got white and all these white horses. And what does Rome have? Black. A red chariot that's ominous and frightening. And then coming out of the side of the wheels of Rome's chariot are blades this long. So he just gets up close to these other chariots. There goes a wheel and there fly these people off, causing death everywhere he goes, which I also thought was pretty interesting. Everybody gets hurt because of the Roman uh, chariot driver. And he had everything going for him. But he didn't have God. And so who won the race? The Jewish people in in Ben-Hur, they will win the battle at the end of time because God is with them. No matter how powerful and ominous the other nations look, it is God who will be the victor. Let's look at the interpretation. Um, Because Daniel didn't understand these visions, he wanted to be... Uh, 
just enlightened in that. So he approaches an angel for clarification. This is probably Gabriel because we see that he does that next in chapter 8. What I'd like you to do is get out your scheme of world events. Because when I tell you the interpretation, it's going to be a lot of stuff we already talked about. So here's what might help. It helped me is just sort of make little notes of everything we talked about, where it happens on this chart. And then keep this chart because I'm sure we'll be using it again. And I think it's, it's very helpful for me. First thing you can do is see where it says church age. Christ has already come. He's ascended. We're waiting for his return. That's us. Draw a little stick figure of yourself in the box that says church age. <laughs> then you'll know where you are. Sort of like those maps. You are here. You are here. <laughs> the four beasts, Gabriel tells Daniel, are the four powerful Gentile kingdoms of the earth. Now, Daniel lived to see two of these empires ruling, Babylon and then, of course, Persia when they came. The Old Testament closed. You might want to write these on the far left side of your chart. The Old Testament closed after Babylon, then Persia. Greece was ruling the world when the Old Testament closed. So we see those three nations. At the beginning of the New Testament, we see the fourth kingdom, Rome, was governing the world. This is uh, when Christ came on the scene, Rome had been governing. We learned that from before, that one day it will be revived. You might write that down where it says second advent of Christ. Um, I wrote down Rome being revived. Actually, in, during the tribulation, you might want to write it in there. And I'm going to talk about the tribulation. Okay, um, the, the confederation of the ten kings will arise during this time too as well. Uh, before the second coming of Christ. This is during the tribulation. This is a seven-year period when the fourth kingdom of Rome and the Antichrist will grow in power. This will result in a one-world government with an evil one-world dictator. This is also the time, these seven years, when many Jews will come to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. A glorious time for them. We believe that we, as Christians in the church age, we will be removed or raptured and caught up. You see that on your chart before the tribulation begins. And then we will return with Christ at the end of the tribulation, at his second coming, when he comes to judge the Antichrist and the evil world system there. Gabriel tells him the fourth beast arises from the fourth kingdom. It will blaspheme God, persecute Israel, and devour the whole earth. But he will be judged and destroyed by God. We've already talked about that. You look and see the great tribulation on your chart. This is when the Antichrist or the little horn comes to power during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. You might want to write his name in there. The great tribulation, a time of unbelievable suffering and hardship. Gabriel tells Daniel the Antichrist will be in power a time, times, and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years, half a time, six months, so three and a half years. The Antichrist will be reigning. And John testified to that. Remember we read his verse? He said the Antichrist, the little horn, will be around for 42 months, which also is three and a half years. 
Gabriel tells Daniel he will oppress Israel and God will allow some of his saints to die. But like that song said, they may take our life physically. They can't take our soul. They can't take our eternal future that we have with God. The Gentiles that helped the Jews who come to Christ during the tribulation will also have a special blessing from God during that very hard time. The Antichrist during that time will attempt to become God, change religious times and laws that would promote his anti-Christian program. We'll talk more about that next week. He doesn't start that way. He starts looking like he's pro-Jerusalem and then quickly turns the other way. Remember, God will judge this Antichrist. He will be destroyed forever at the advent of uh, the return of Christ. Um, And this we see on our outline at the Battle of Armageddon on your um, scheme of world events. Then Gabriel tells Daniel the saints will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. This will take place after the destruction of the Antichrist at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And the saints here really specifically refers to those Jews that have come to Christ during the tribulation. Um, They had been set aside for so many years under divine discipline because of their disobedience. This was during the times of the Gentile dominion. And now is the time when all of God's covenant promises, Alleluia, will finally be evident in Israel. Every promise God had made to this nation, never did he abandon them or his promises. Remember some of those promises. We see what God had in mind here when he reigns with them in the millennium. He says, you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. I won't forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. For the Lord has redeemed Israel. He displays his glory in Israel. But we know, all of us who also know the Lord, We will be a part of the eternal kingdom of Christ because when God made his covenant promise with Abraham, what did he say? All nations will be blessed through you. We will also enjoy that eternal kingdom with our Savior. Okay, so how can all this information about tomorrow impact our lives today? This is our encouragement. If God's word is trustworthy for our tomorrow, it's trustworthy for our today. When Ted and I were talking about Daniel, this is what excites him the most. He goes, can you believe how everything Daniel is saying has happened and is happening? This book is alive. So if I decide every day to read it, something alive will happen within my heart. Give me wisdom and direction and peace. It's trustworthy for my tomorrow. Psalm 119 tells us on your verse sheet. Your words are forever right. They give me understanding that I may live. If God has a plan for our tomorrow, he has a plan for our today. Unlike all the other faiths that walk around while they are on this earth, carrying the yoke of good works and legalism, our faith alone is all about living our life, not in our strength, 
but in God's strength. What an incredible thing. So we can trust in his power and his plans for our lives, knowing that our good times and our bad times are woven into the purposes he has for us. Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In Romans 15, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, if God's love will surround us tomorrow, like we just saw, then surely his love will surround us today. And maybe you're like me. After I first read this, I stopped back and thought, this isn't about, this chapter was about God's wrath, God's judgment. It's not about the love of God. And then I might remind us that in this chapter, we see his faithful plans for Israel because of his love for them. We're reminded about the Son of Man that God took on flesh because of his love for us. That we might know his love. That we, in these verses, realize we will meet with Christ in the air before the tribulation and return to reign with him because of his great love for us and that Jesus prepared a place for us. He tells us in John 14, because he loves us and that both Jew and Gentile and all the nations will be loved for all eternity. And I have to remind myself, It is not the wrath of God that dictates history. It is the love of God that dictates all of history. Ted and I were driving through Arlington Heights, the little neighborhood back here a few years ago. And it was a really interesting thing. We were nearing a corner in our car. We were going real slow. And we saw a man walking. He had a backpack with a baby in it on his back. And he was walking down straight down the sidewalk. And he got to the corner where we were going to turn. So Ted thought, I'm going to wait, let him cross the street. So the man comes down the sidewalk. It reclines down. When, when the curb reclined down to the street, he took one step. Then he stood back up and stood there a minute. Ted and I had the opportunity to look at his face. And we realized He was blind. And he stood up and he turned around and he started back down the sidewalk in this other direction. My first thought was how brave he was. But then, guess what my second thought was? How brave his wife was. When she took her baby, their baby, and tied it in a backpack and sent it out the door with her blind husband. And I thought to myself, how could she do that? Here's how. She knew how much that husband loved that baby. And she knew that he knew exactly where he was going because he wanted to keep that baby safe. And it was safe in his love. And so I look out at the world sometimes and we can say things look dark, things look ominous. Sometimes I wonder, is God still in control? Is he kind of blindly letting history pass by him? And then we remember, he's carrying us on his back. And he loves us with all his might. And so every step he takes, he's keeping us safe. 
and we can count and trust that he knows exactly where he's going so we are secure in his love today and tomorrow. So we live in the hope of his unfailing love. Look at the last verse. The Lord delights in those who fear him and put their hope in his unfailing love. Let me pray. Lord, you are majestic, mighty, holy, and then we can add loving to that list. We praise you, Father. We just give you praise today, and we trust you with our future as we trust you with our day today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.